This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation. Today we're talking with Arlene Englander, who wrote Let Go of Emotional Overeating and Love Your Food. Arlene is a licensed psychotherapist trained at Columbia University with over 20 years of clinical experience, and she is herself a formal emotion, former emotional overeater. She is currently in private practice in North Palm Beach, Florida. Oh, gators. <laughs> Let Go of Emotional Overeating and Love Your Food, a five-point plan for success, is for anyone who wishes they could eat what they like, savor it, and just stop at the point of satisfaction without overeating. Readers learn how to become more aware of the difference between eating in a healthy way and eating emotionally. Proven techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy and mindful eating are presented in an innovative, easy-to-remember way. So good to be here, doctor. Thanks for featuring me. I'm glad to have you, Arlene. So let's just start out by talking about how widespread is the problem of emotional overeating? Unfortunately, it is very widespread. While there are no specific stats per se, uh, we do know that 70% of the population in, in, the, in the United States is either obese or overweight. Mm-hmm. And a 2006 Pew Research poll showed that six out of 10 Americans state that they eat more than they should, uh, either often, 17% of the time, or sometimes 42% of the time. So this leads us to believe that the numbers are unfortunately quite high. And there's been a lot of research that's come out in you know the past couple of years that has shown the rate of type 2 diabetes in children is going up dramatically. And, you know, that leads me to think that they are probably emotionally overeating as well because they are lacking the coping skills and strategies that they need. They're not, you know, we're not born with it. And their parents may not have the skills to teach them alternate ways. And, you know, we learn what we observe. So true. So, So they may be picking some of that up from their parents. So this is really an intergenerational problem as well. Very, very true, doctor. And uh, the point that you're making about role modeling is key. In fact, the Chinese have a wonderful ancient proverb, proverb that states, children often don't do what we are telling them to do because what we ourselves are doing are screaming so loudly they can't hear us. Exactly. And being a parent myself, I can tell you that's true. You know, they they do as I do, not as I say. So let's briefly talk. We touched on diabetes just a second ago, but let's talk about what are some of the biopsychosocial consequences of emotional overeating? Well, on on the biological level, of course, it is one uh, strong contributing factor to overweight. But in addition, uh, the uh, lack of joy in life that... uh, is, is a result because of the obsessions about food, what we feel we should eat or we shouldn't eat, or how badly we feel about ourselves when we do feel that we've eaten unnecessarily, really does drain a lot of the joy in life, lead to 
uh, obsessing lead to uh, depression, lead to anxiety. Uh, so it's it's real. The effects are very wide in scope. And I would think some of the biological um, consequences as well. We know that there is a high correlation between high body fat percentage and things like cancer and cardiovascular disease. So there are long ranging effects um, on the person. But we also have um, issues where when people emotionally overeat, if they get overweight, then they may have less energy, exercise less, and it's a, a negative downward spiral. Down, yeah, it is very much a downward, a downward spiral. And uh, the health, the health issues can not be overstated in terms of heart disease and stroke and diabetes and uh, just uh, um, a lack of energy, a lack of enthusiasm for life. Uh, the, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's rather broad ranging and uh, unfortunate. And it's not a question that we had talked about ahead of time, so I'm just going to throw you one from left field. But uh, one of the things we keep talking about is emotional overeating. And, you know, I think everybody eats emotionally at times. What's the difference between emotional overeating that were, that's problematic versus the occasional, I really had a bad day and, you know, I'm going to have that extra piece of cake or something? That sounds very, to me, that sounds very much like um, a matter of degree. But even if it's occasional, I do believe that it certainly is helpful for us to learn better ways to soothe ourselves when we have had a bad day. Uh, This probably takes us into the definition, as I see it, of emotional overeating, which I think is really key because when we're aware, awareness gives us so much power. And The definition that I have found most useful for my clients, uh, as well as for myself, is that emotional overeating is eating neither for enjoyment nor for the satisfaction of hunger, but in a desperate attempt to distract ourselves from painful thoughts and feelings. Okay. So So overeating for enjoyment, say you go to a restaurant and they have the most tastiest lasagna that you've ever had or whatever it is that you like, you know, sometimes people are going to overeat, but that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is using food as an escape. It's different both qualitatively and quantitatively from healthy, normal eating, Mm -hmm. which is both for enjoyment and the satisfaction of hunger. Mm -hmm. When we're uh, a healthy eater, we will see that lasagna and probably after having uh, some uh, water, some fluids, some healthy salad or whatever, we'll sit down and we will slowly savor a small portion of it and stop just at the point of satisfaction, which is very different from seeing it and feeling that because it's forbidden or bad, that as of the very first bite, we ourselves are bad, feeling uncomfortable, feeling labeling ourselves for that negatively, and then feeling that we're compelled to soothe that stress by eating more, which of course is the substance of choice for emotional overeaters who are feeling stressed or badly about themselves. So it becomes a downward spiral as opposed to seeing that lasagna, which maybe we don't eat every day, but seeing it as a special treat, not a cheat, sitting and slowly savoring it 
after filling ourselves to some degree on other healthier foods and stopping just at the point of satisfaction. It's totally different qualitatively and quantitatively, and it's actually far more pleasurable than emotional overeating, which I can attest to both professionally and personally. Right. And, and one of the really important points you keep bringing up is starting by eating healthier foods, you know, salads, soups, getting some fluids in you, because one of the struggles that a lot of my patients have is slowing down. Our brain doesn't register food in our stomach the minute it hits our stomach. You know, there's that 20 minute or so lag before our brain starts getting the message that, hey, we're satiated and encouraging people to start and, and try to make sure that their meals last you know, at least 20 minutes instead of gulping their food. What I have found helpful is uh, rather than making the emphasis on slowing down, keeping the emphasis on pleasure, enjoyment, relaxation. So keeping the, the emphasis on relaxing and really being there in the moment and slowly savoring whatever it is within, whatever it is we love within an 80 to 90%, and this is advised by most evolved nutritionists today, within an 80 to 90% healthy food, 10 to 20% fun food ratio, tuning in to the degree to which we're hungry, the degree to which we're full, as we slowly savor every aspect of those foods in a very sensuous way, stopping just at the point of satisfaction. So what we're focusing on is not eating slowly. And sometimes this can be uh, exaggerated to the point of people believing that they have to take a certain number of bites when they eat. Right. Which Unfortunately, it's counterproductive. What we're talking about is being there in the moment, savoring the moment, savoring food, tuning into their degree of hunger or fullness, and stopping just at the point of satisfaction in a very compassionate and self-loving way. It's, it's really, it's, it's a sensuous experience. It's a self-accepting experience. And it's a skill that can be learned. And it's far different than what a lot of us were taught when we were growing up if we were members of the Clean Plate Club. I know, you know, my family was very um, adamant. You know, you eat what's on your plate. If you put it on your plate, you're going to put it in your belly. And, you know, a lot of times, especially when when I was a kid, my eyes were far bigger than my stomach. (laughs) So you know, teaching people to unlearn that habit. You don't have to clean your plate and move from there. So what are some practical strategies for helping people address stress away from the table so they don't feel the need to uh, engage with in, in eating in order to cope with their emotions? This is really key. When we learn how to self-soothe in an effective way, that takes a lot of the negative power away from food. So uh, with CBT, the way I see it, in order to make it as practical and easy to remember as possible, uh, the first important step is to tune in to how we are speaking to ourselves when we're feeling upset or slightly anxious or angry or at times of stress. So to tune into those thoughts that we routinely or habitually have uh, towards ourselves that I refer to as pain-producing thoughts, because I feel it's not judgmental, pain-producing thoughts. And we all know, and we've seen them categorized as, because they tend to be 
uh, pessimistic. They tend to be all pervasive. They tend to be, um, uh, sometimes I refer to it as, as seeing and personalized, as seeing the difference between seeing a cloud in the sky versus having a big dark cloud that's following us everywhere. So when we become aware of these pain-producing thoughts, which can be the shoulds, which can be the what-ifs, which can be uh, negative labeling of ourselves and others, which can be personalizing, uh, the key is to answer those back much as a compassionate yet logical friend would do. And sometimes I will suggest that clients either come up in their minds with someone who has been supportive to them during their lives, or just develop that voice within themselves. And the beauty of this is that when it becomes habitual, we do have a way of soothing ourselves sans food, without food, on a regular basis that will eventually become habitual as well. Of course, there are other ways to deal with stress as well. I mean, traditionally, of course, we can phone just phone a friend. We can get engaged in a pleasurable activity or a hobby that involves us fully. There, there are so many different, and, and exercise, which I think we're going to be talking about a little, a little later. Any pleasurable, productive, and engaging activity can also be extremely helpful in getting past stress. And if necessary, of course, seeing a therapist as well is a good idea for many. Well, let's take that kind of to the next step or the next hurdle, if you will. What if a lot of the stress that people experience is sitting with them at the table? Um, critical parents, critical significant others. Um, I, I was talking to one young woman a couple of weeks ago who was you know, really doing well on her journey to begin more mindful, intuitive eating and had lost quite a bit of weight and she still had more to lose and she was still, you know, working hard towards that, but she had a dinner coming up with her family. And apparently whenever she goes to dinner with her family, she's an adult, obviously, uh, instead of being supportive, they criticize everything that she eats and they say, you know, you shouldn't be, maybe you shouldn't order that, or that's too many calories for you to have, or even if it's not focusing on food, sometimes when you're sitting around the table with your family, however that is defined, they can be, it can be a stressful situation. It can be a tense situation. So how do we help people deal with stress when they're trying to eat and that stressor is just literally looking them in the face? Wonderful question. And I would set, if I was that young lady, I would set the groundworks with mom before in a loving way. What, what many of us uh, refer to when, uh, we are sharing uh, assertiveness strategies as a sa the sandwich technique. Mm -hmm. And the sandwich technique, which I see you nodding, was traditionally known of as a sweet piece of bread, such as, Mom, I know you love me dearly, uh, and I love you too, first sweet piece of bread. Then the meat of the message, which can be, uh, but I really would prefer if we can discuss fun topics other than my food and eating when we have when we eat meals together uh it's i think it's it's healthier for me it's better for me and um it'll really help us all to enjoy ourselves better when we're together and then uh the final 
piece of the uh, sandwich, which is the final sweet piece of bread after the meat, which is I'm sure that that meals will be really more enjoyable for all of us when we do this. So I, I know that you love me and I love you dearly. I'd rather, however, that when we eat together, we talk about other more fun things than my food or uh, various aspects of my behavior that may trouble you. And I'm sure that we'll enjoy meals and our time together so much more when you know, when we handle them this way. And I'm so looking forward, Mom, to spending a lot of great time with you in the future. So you've got sweet piece of bread, you've got the meat in the middle, and then you have a sweet plan. Mm-hmm. So buffering that, and of course, that's best done at the table. Now, away from the table. Now, if, of course, because habits tend to recur, which is part of the interesting challenge of of this kind of work, whether it's about communication or um, eating habits or whatever. If it comes up at the table, I would suggest just to say, um, thanks for that suggestion. And hey, incidentally, has anyone seen that great movie at the theater last uh, couple of days ago? So in other words, you just change the subject Mm -hmm. in a very gracious way. So take charge in a pleasurable and loving way. And these are skills, again, that that can be learned that I discuss with clients in our one-on-one work, that I've discussed in my writing. Uh, everything that we do, the goal is that it be practical, that it be pleasurable, and that it become a new, healthier, happier habit. Right. And that... Um sandwich, as you called it, can also be used not just for people who are being critical of someone's eating, but also if they're just being critical or argumentative or stressful in some way, buffering it, again, away from the table, starting with that sweet piece of bread, identifying the problem, and then that last thing is creating a win-win, making that nice solution for people. Sweet piece of bread, meat of the message, sweet plan. And I think it's really helpful for those of us who may need to, and I'm always working on improving my assertiveness uh, uh, and probably will do so throughout my life, hopefully to do so in a very helpful, uh, in a very pleasant and effective way. What's helpful is to remind ourselves that we're not only doing ourselves a favor, but we're doing the other person a favor too. Because if somebody is being judgmental and picky, no fun, no pun intended about how we eat, then they're probably doing that in other aspects of their lives, maybe with their spouse or with friends who may be distancing from them for that reason. So we're sending them a really helpful message that, uh, Uh, is a gift that we're giving to them. And if we can do it in a positive way, then as you say, it's definitely a win-win. And that's a great point that it does send them a message. So before we we get too far in the process, um, we've talked about a little bit about exercise. We alluded to it earlier. So why is exercise important for emotional overeaters and how is it helpful? Very much so. Uh, Yes and yes is my answer to to that question. Um, First of all, as I'm sure you know, doctor, when we exercise uh, for a certain period of time uh, at a moderate level of activity, um, endorphins kick in, which are also known as our body's Prozac, that in a biochemical way actually help us feel better. 
So many of us exercise as much for that reason as for anything else. I know that's true of me. In addition, of course, it can help with weight control. And uh, it's uh, for reasons that would probably take several hours, one of the most healthy things that we can do. And uh, making that a regular part of our lives, again, in a pleasurable and practical way, doing everything possible to make it fun is key. And you might notice as you talk to me that my general um, focus here is on making it fun and making it happen. It's not about what not to do. It's about how to make what we know needs to happen a reality. And mm -hmm. it's the way I like to work with my clients, uh, the focus of my writing. And it's also the way I like to live. And uh, uh, so, so that's, that's the focus here, how to make exercise happen. And as far as some specifics on that, what's really helpful for most of us is to do it first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because if we let it slide to later on in the day, what happened? Other people will commandeer our day and our schedule. And most likely it's, it's not going to happen or the chances it will happen will become increasingly low. Um, something, one of the many sort of more concrete, specific suggestions could be just to put your exercise, your workout wear at the foot of the bed. So it's the first thing you see when you get up. Mm -hmm. Once you have it on, most likely you're going to get there. Uh, something that I talk about a great deal in my writing and with clients is zoning in on what your exercise excuses might be. Mm -hmm. And one of the most interesting um, contradictions I find is that when we tell ourselves, well, you know, one of the common excuses is I don't feel like it. When we feel like it least, it's very often when we need it the most. Mm -hmm. So when we have that feeling, I should, but I don't feel like it. What's helpful is to ignore that I don't feel like it message and just routinely, almost robotically, go through the motion of putting on the workout wear, putting on the sneakers, pointing our, our feet either towards, towards the walkway where we're going to walk or the gym where we're heading without even thinking about it. Because the less we want to go, very often, the more stressed out and harried we are and the more we need it. And that's one of those principles we use in addictions recovery. We say dress up and show up. And sometimes you just, they don't feel like going to meetings, they don't feel like going to group, but they just need to get there because when they need a meeting is when they want to go and when they don't want to go. Yeah, uh, sure. and, and those are definitely some principles that can be helpful with exercise. I'm a morning exerciser too. My, my kids will even tell you, mommy, you're much nicer if you go to the gym in the morning. And I own it. You know, that's fans rooting you on or mini therapists, mini PA. It, it, it is it is my stress relief. But you know, some people are just not morning people. And I found with them, like you said, with leaving clothes at the end of the bed, packing their gym bag and taking it with them. Because if they go home, the chances are of leaving the house and getting to the gym decrease exponentially. But if they bring their gym bag with them, if they're one of those people who gets their second wind at five o'clock or something, you know, God bless them. Um, you know, that tends to be helpful. And or if they meet a buddy. Um, I know when I was in college, I had a friend of mine that I used to meet at the gym in the evening. And 
I was a lot more likely to go because I was not going to stand her up. And even if I just, like you said, dressed up and showed up and got back in the day, it was the Stairmaster. Um, and we got on the Stairmaster and I did some really low level. At least I was there. And I felt better about myself because I had empowered myself to make that choice that was in my best interest. Well, you've made a couple of good points. And, you know, in terms of having a buddy, that is great. And that's one of the reasons why. And, and this keep, and the, the concept of keeping it fun is really important to me in both my life and my work. And uh, that's why sports can be wonderful, because if you know that there are three people waiting for you on that tennis court, chances are you're going to show up. Uh, if you know a friend, as you were suggesting, is at the health club, chances are you're going to show up. If you know a team is waiting for you. So finding a way to make it fun, uh, finding a way that involves other people uh, can, can really help to make it happen in a very big way. Uh, but in addition, you said something earlier that I'm, I'd like to come back to. I hope we have time for it. But you said some of your clients say they aren't morning people. What I have sometimes found with clients who start out by telling me they aren't morning people is that the reason that they aren't quote unquote morning people is because they've been up late at night snacking. And uh, with unstructured time, watching television or other screens for six or seven hours in a row, they haven't gotten it to bed for very late. They may not be sleeping well. They're involved in a number of other activities that are counterproductive to their health. And once they start to whittle away slowly at that and uh, start to get a bedtime that's a little earlier, start to get more involved in um, pleasurable, engaging activities in the evening, structuring their time rather than dealing with unstructured time for uh, many, many hours. One of the things I suggest about evening eating uh, and how to combat that is not just having a, a book available at home, but having a great book available, something we really want to read and we're looking forward to that competes in some ways with that snack. Not that an occasional snack is problematic if, again, as most nutritionists say, 90% healthy, 10% fun, we sit and really slowly savor that one piece of whatever, the Godiva chocolate or, or what have you. So um, when people say that they aren't morning people, it might be helpful for them to take a look at whether or not their evenings are really as pleasurable and productive and um, concise as it may be healthy for those evenings to be. And, and that's definitely true for some people that if they reset their circadian rhythms a little bit, uh, minutes a week, they, usually it's practical, believe it or not. No more. I'm sorry? 15 minute changes a week right. is really about the most that most people can do. But go ahead. And and that's true. But if they start working on scooching back their circadian rhythms a little bit so they are on a more morning schedule, it, it certainly helps. I know I wake up without an alarm every morning at 4 a.m. That's just my body's set to do that now. And, you know, I go to sleep at 8 p.m. But, you know, uh, it's, impo it's important to make sure that we do. And I harp on sleep a lot because sleep deprivation um, throws your your ghrelin and leptin your hunger and satiation hormones out of whack and people who are not getting quality sleep are also going to have those problems not only are they going to be lethargic and snacky if you will but 
you know, they're going to have a whole host of other issues going on. There's but, a lot of chicken and egg going on there. Right. It's exactly. Uh, Multi-determined and it's, there's a lot, there's, a, there's, there's quite a feedback loop involved in, uh, in those, in those two issues. And so there's a lot to be learned about it. And, and there's also a lot to be explored and a lot to be uh, tweaked that can be extremely helpful. That's so true. And over the years, one of my specialties is uh, first responders and they have crazy schedules um, that 12, 12 hours on, you know, three days in a row and then two days off. And I know when my husband was working midnight shift, he was just perpetually green because of that jet lag, uh, because he would switch his schedule on his days off to be awake with the family, and which, you know, we appreciated, but it was not helpful for his insulin resistance. It was not helpful for his eating habits or his sleeping habits, for that matter. And, and there are some departments still that switch people from one shift to another literally every month so their body never adjusts and it that's one of my big things with them because and and they wonder why their workforce is becoming progressively unhealthy and developing diabetes and things i'm like well let's take a look at what you're doing but for, for his service and um i you know i think you're pointing up the fact that there's no one plan fits all but it's a matter of really tuning in to the interaction between the environment and ourselves and asking ourselves, well, what can I do to be the healthiest I can be, but also to um, enjoy my life the most, handle stress, stress most effectively, and find joy. And it's, it's, it's something that involves a lot of introspection and very often work between the individual and the helping professional um, uh, or finding those that information from other sources, such as the writing I have tried uh, that I have produced, such as um, the media and um, uh, social supports. And uh, there's no one size answer for all, but getting people on the path of uh, a heightened awareness of their behavior and how they can improve it uh, is is really uh, a helpful step. Which segues really nicely right into the next topic of how can we help people become more mindful in their eating? In their eating. Um, As I stated before, um, there are, you know, several steps that we can practice, which I go into, um, you know, a bit more uh, specifically in my book with a couple of mnemonic devices. I'm big on mnemonic devices. Oh, yeah, me too. Great. Five steps because they, they make suggestions more portable. Mm-hmm. and easy to remember and user-friendly. So, um, I mean, you know, but in terms of the mindful eating per se, I'll get to the mnemonic devices in a, in a moment, but in terms of the mindful eating per se, when we, we get into the habit of learning how to sit down whenever we eat, to relax, to tune into ourselves as well as our surrounding surroundings, which also has the effect of helping us without necessarily even thinking about it to tune out any stress that we may have hopefully effectively handled using CBT and other means away from the table. Uh, When we tune in not only to whatever we can find that's pleasurable in our surroundings, but what we're experiencing within ourselves, any tension, any uh, allowing ourselves to, to relax, tune into how hungry we are versus how full, uh, think about the food we're about to eat, 
notice when it comes with all of our senses, uh, everything there is to savor and enjoy about it, the sight, the uh, scent, the taste, the texture. Um, and then as we're slowly savoring our food, noticing to what degree the level of hunger lowers and the level of fullness rises just until we get to the point of perfect satisfaction and stopping soon after uh, feeling totally satisfied feeling that we've really had an enjoyable experience and taken wonderful care of ourselves and then feeling able to really enjoy our day feeling good feeling light and looking forward to repeating that experience again this is a skill that we can break down in just a couple of steps that I've started to do now and I do further in my writing, that we can practice and learn and repeat on a daily basis until it becomes habitual. So our habit no longer is to sit down and um, feel guilty about what we're eating or not eating, to uh, feel we have to eat everything that's on our plate, to get up feeling stuffed and sad rather than light and energetic and positive. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's, a really, it's a really far better and more enjoyable way to eat and to live. And one of the analogies I use with my clients is, you know, our, our feeling of satiation is often like a river. When it rains outside, the rain will come down and the rain will come down and the river will rise a little bit, but the river continues to rise even after the rain has stopped. So if we continue to eat until we feel, you know, full, so to speak, you know, and, and a lot of people eat until they're, they're feeling almost unpleasantly full, then, you know, a few minutes later, after everything's caught up, after the river has finished rising, they may feel uncomfortably full. So recognizing that and stopping not feeling like they're going to be hungry or worried that they're going to be hungry two hours later if they stop before they feel unpleasantly well, I, full. I refer to that as prophylactic eating, you know, eating yeah. because perhaps they'll be hungry later. And, you know, for in the early stages, I suggest that, you know, clients, and one of the things that, that I describe more, you know, as I write, is actually break it down on a scale of one to nine, mm -hmm. with nine being... Uh, as uncomfortably full as they'd ever want to be to the point where they have to lose it, lose the food, and one being, you know, probably as hungry as they'll ever be, and five being just perfectly satisfied. And notice as they get right up to that five, and maybe uh, stop a skosh above at five and a half or six, but never getting to the point where they're belt loosening full. <laughs> feeling, always feeling, you know, that they're doing something good for themselves and positive and satisfying themselves just to the point that they need to feel satisfied without overeating. And it's really um, helpful to get used to that very healthy sensation and learn to replicate it and learn to be good to ourselves in that way. It's a very, um, as I try to do uh, throughout my work and uh, throughout what I advise to clients, it's very self-accepting and it's very mm -hmm. compassionate, self-compassionate. And uh, um, so that reverberates, you know, when we treat ourselves, when we feel that way about ourselves, when we do not judge ourselves, for example, for how we look or how we've eaten in the past, but simply 
congratulate ourselves for learning new habits and for practicing them and feel good about ourselves in our efforts and try to better understand our efforts when they haven't worked exactly as we'd hoped and ask ourselves, well, you know, what about that didn't work as well as it might? What can I tweak? What can I change for the next meal or for tomorrow? That kind of a very compassionate and understanding approach when adopted to ourselves, to those around us, can just be so extremely helpful in so many ways. It's definitely very liberating to focus on progress, not perfection. Exactly. And, you know, so a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast are clinicians, and they're probably wanting some tips for helping their their clients deal with emotional overeating and, you know, things that they can do. And it sounds like a lot of the the material in your book would be very helpful for a lot of these for a lot of these clients. However, there's been some recent case law in Florida, especially with a coach. And, and I know that's a special case, but with a coach getting in trouble with the state board for making nutritional recommendations. So how can our listeners who are counselors and social workers, I won't say 494-91 because that's only Florida, um, how can we help clients begin adjusting their eating and nutritional habits without stepping outside that scope of practice and risking getting in trouble? The work that I'm suggesting that um, I, with clients and to some degree have done with myself, is about empowering our clients to do what they know they need to do uh, because it's best for themselves and their health. And they may know that because their physicians have told them to do it, nutritionists they've seen, their trainer. I'm not specifically telling people exactly what to do, but what I'm doing is I am helping to empower them to do what they know is the most healthy way to live. And And, and, I'm helping them to get past the emotional roadblocks, the emotional issues that make it difficult, if not impossible, for them to do what they know they need to do. And a lot of of what we've talked about today has been about mindfulness, cognitive behavioral, increasing motivation, and those are all within our wheelhouse. And, you know, so what we're not doing is we're not telling people, here's a menu, this is what you should eat this week, because that is outside of our wheelhouse. Um, You know, I have no idea what somebody's ideal breakfast is or what's going to help their cholesterol levels or whatever. That's between them and their dietitian or their physician. Uh, But what we can do is, is, like you said, help them get motivated to do the next right thing. And some of them will go online and they will find, you know, different eating styles, I'll I'll call it that for right now, and whether I agree with it or not is not necessarily relevant, Um, but encouraging them to be educated if they want to do keto or if they want to do Mediterranean or if they want to do this or that. Okay, just educate yourself, and, you know, if you're going to make drastic dietary changes, run it by your doctor. You know, I always throw that out there, knowing that 80% of the time, they're not going to do it, but at least it makes me feel better that I've pointed out to them that everything you read on the internet isn't necessarily safe or healthy. Um, but the things that are in your book, let, uh, let go of emotional overeating and love your food is really about cognitive and mindfulness approaches that can serve as a adjunct 
to nutritional counseling. So this book is actually also good for nutritionists and thank you and nutritionists do seem to like it as well as a number of physicians people in, in a variety of and because nutritionists and and physicians really don't get a lot of training in all of the stuff that we talked about so i think they probably find it you know immensely helpful to have those uh, mnemonic devices that they can give clients and one of the things that I encourage some clients to do with mnemonic devices is just an aside um, is to make a bracelet and you can get you know pretty beads you don't have to get the ones like a two-year-old would use but make a bracelet that has that mnemonic device on it so you've got it with you and you can look down you know right before you eat and you can see that on your wrist and it reminds you of you know, what you might need to do at that point in time well one of the mnemonic devices for example that um, I used to help uh, readers uh, and my clients remember the five steps of the plan is the word self. Are you doing what's best for yourself? And S has to do with handling stress effectively. E has to do with exercise, learning to love it. L has to do with loving your food or eating mindfully. And F has to do with filling up on fluid and healthy foods as much as possible first. And the Second part is the question, am I a light eater? And that comes from a joke I heard way back, and there's a lot of humor in my writing and in my work, uh, uh, where a comedian was saying, um, I'm a light eater. As soon as it gets light, I start to eat. <laughs> this is about becoming a light eater in a very positive way in terms of eating mostly when it's light and eating lightly. And really having control over evening eating. So it's the question, am I doing what's better for my, best for myself, S-E-L-F, and am I a light eater? And I have found that this is really helpful because this portable mnemonic device, which I call a one-minute monitor, allows us to check in every day. Hey, you know, have I, am I keeping up with those healthy habits that I'm learning? And, uh, um, so whatever we can do to help make it happen, to remember it, to make it pleasurable is, uh, really helpful. And when we, when we tell clients that we're going to advise work that is going to be pleasurable, that's going to be practical, um, and, uh, that, you know, believe it or not, you know, may even to some degree be fun. It makes it easier to encourage them to be open-minded about doing doing so rather than that we're going to give them a rather than thinking of giving them a lecture about what they should not do that they should give up this that or the other in in their lives so um i would also suggest never pushing this on clients listening to them truly listening and tuning into where they're at because in time we'll often find that they themselves will bring up that they would like to feel fitter. They'd like to feel lighter. They're, they're tired of having this, this heavy, uncomfortable feeling at the end of meals. They're tired about obsessing about food and what they should or shouldn't eat every day or um, uh, feeling badly about themselves if they've had one bite of a food that they really love, having a second bite feeling worse about themselves, and eventually having that descend into a full-fledged binge. When we tune in we, and we say, you know, it sounds like that's causing you a lot of pain. Do you want to discuss that further? Let's look a little bit about emotional overeating. Can I share a definition with you that I've recently heard about? And if they like that, 
we can then say, well, you know, this is where I heard about it. Maybe this is something you'd like to check out, either to buy or in your local library. It's in libraries nationwide. And then you can go on a journey together to whatever mm-hmm. degree. It's something that you choose to do. But um, uh, to, to really try in a, an accepting and compassionate way, there was a very big term at Columbia University where, where I did my training uh, New York State Psychiatric Institute was one of my internships, which which had to do with meeting the client where they're at. And, you know, I, I think throughout my career, I periodically uh, had to remind myself of that and momentarily got myself into a little trouble when I drifted even uh, a couple of inches away. Am I truly meeting the client where they're at? So if we relate to them and relate to um, both their progress and their pain, and let them know that we're there with them and we're willing to move forward with them. And maybe we have a few new tools that uh, we're excited about uh, helping us along in that journey. It can really help them to make those steps forward and feel that um, they have a friend along the way. Cool. Well, um, this again, we were talking with Arlene Englander. She wrote, let go of emotional overeating and love your food. And if you have any other questions, I am sure she would love to talk to you. You can uh, reach out to her. Do you want to give a email address or phone number or certainly office my, number? Certainly. My email address is Arlene Beth Englander at gmail.com. My office number is 561-863-0091. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, AB Englander, Facebook, all those other places. Uh, uh, although I, I try to lead as much of my keep as much of my time as organic as possible, which gets increasingly hard for all of us. Exactly. Uh, but it's it's truly been a pleasure uh, meeting with you and speaking with you, and I, I so appreciate your helping me share what I feel is a um, happy and healthy message uh, for this year, and hopefully that people will find helpful for years to come. And it's so timely since people are setting their um, New Year's resolutions, deciding to live healthier this year. This is a great goal, and they can go out, they can order the book off Amazon Thank and you. probably have it you know, in two days so they can get started on Monday. Hopefully the message here, though, is that it's not a New Year, New You type of thing that it's how you want to be and to live all year round. Because if it isn't practical and if it isn't permanent, if it isn't, I'm sorry, if it isn't practical and if it isn't pleasurable, it won't be permanent. So our goal is, and I'm sure that's with with you as well with everything you do with your patients, um, to make it all three, practical, pleasurable, and permanent. Permanent. So awesome. Well, I appreciate you being with me today and I hope to have you back on uh, when you have your next book out. Thank you. I'd love to do that. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend therapy notes. Their easy to use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit therapynotes.com to get two free months of therapy notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at therapynotes.com.
If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.